It was a movie in 1992 uh, whose name will actually remain unnamed because I've never seen it and I don't know if it's a good movie or not. Um, but from the movie, uh, though famous in nature, produced a line out of that movie that I believe has grown more famous uh, than the movie itself. Uh, the scene being a courtroom where the defendant was being accused of doing all of these different things, and uh, the one accusing him asks him uh, to tell the truth, and what does the defendant say? He says, you can't handle the truth. Paul Pierce was a longtime Boston Celtic player, now retired, a Hall of Famer, uh, but who was dubbed, and he proudly wore the nickname of the truth. J.K. Rowling, who penned uh, Dumbledore, a uh, very famous character uh, from, from the series that she wrote. Uh, but he talked about the truth in one of his lines, and he said, the truth is a beautiful and terrible thing, and it should therefore be treated with great caution. It was also some 2,000 years ago, where in John chapter 18, we have recorded for us a man by the name of Pontius Pilate asking the question, what is truth? Truth be told, that question has been asked a lot over the years, even up now into our society and our world today. We talk about it, we read about it, we say we can know it, others say we can't know it, so what is true about truth? Is there anything true about it in its nature? You know, when we're talking about the idea of truth, certainly it's one that is of great importance, especially living in a society and in a culture in which we live where so many people in our world today live by this philosophy of truth being unable to be known, of truth being whatever you want it to be, and it almost seeming like we are living in a live taping of the Oprah Winfrey show where she says, you can have your own version of truth and you can have your own version of truth and you can be whatever it is that you want it to be. This morning, I want to talk about the truth about the truth. And I hope that you come back this evening. Joey and I have tied our sermons once again together uh, to go hand in hand, uh, also to connect within our mission statement uh, for this year here at the Roanoke Church of Christ, specifically talking about the latter portion of that mission statement, talking about the truth itself. I don't want to simply repeat what I talked about in class a couple of weeks ago that I taught to the junior high, high school, and also the adult class. Um, it's funny how things like that line up. Um, Joey and I put our plan for preaching together back in November, far before I ever approached him with the idea of doing this study that we did on Wednesday nights. And it's just funny how things line up, how topics line up, and how they go hand in hand. But I think it's important to consider several things as we talk about this idea about the truth about the truth. And the first one is this. The truth about the truth is this. Number one, truth does exist. Truth does exist. I feel as if when we talk about, we have a discussion, a conversation about truth, you can't really start anywhere else but right here. Because if truth doesn't exist, there would be no point to the discussion, would there? If truth doesn't exist, there would be no point to us trying to talk about things that are true about the nature of truth itself. So can we know if truth exists? Simply put, you and I know that yes, the truth can be known. We know that the truth does exist because Jesus said so himself. A very famous verse, John chapter 8 and verse 32, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. A statement of absolutes that Jesus is making here. A statement with no room for any doubts, no room for questioning, no room for wondering if truth maybe cannot be known. And yet it's a statement that is refused by so many in our world today, isn't it? 
It's a statement that so many people balk at today because if you accept this very fact that truth does exist, then it immediately takes away your ability to live your life however it is that you want to live it. And thus people turn a blind eye. People turn an ignorant mind and they're happy with there being no standard of truth. But Jesus said truth can be known. Truth can be known because we can determine it through our own reasoning. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, Come now, let us reason together. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, specifically in verse 2, the Bible says that Paul, as his custom was, went in and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Truth can be known through our own reasoning. By coming to logical conclusions and by using our own good judgment, you don't need to be an eloquent logician, do you? You don't need to have a PhD in order to understand what the scriptures are teaching you. Someone with as little as a fifth grade education can understand the scriptures just as someone who has years and years of graduate work. Scripture can be known, truth can be known through our own reasoning. Truth can also be known through also sincerely seeking. Go back to Acts chapter 17. Again, you think there in verse 11, the Bible says that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They knew what the truth was. They knew that it was their standard, and we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But they looked at the scriptures as it was being preached. They held it parallel to the standard that they lived up to, that being the truth. And they wanted to see if it was true. Acts chapter 27, you continue reading in this book. You look at verse beginning of verse 26. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. When we talk about the truth, we understand that truth holds a very specific identity. When, when you look at the book of John and you study all throughout it, and truthfully, John, just as a New Testament writer, you, you read and study in his other writings, in First and Second and Third John as well, truth, the idea of truth always seems to float to the very forefront of what John is talking about. Throughout the gospel account and throughout all of his writings, it's front and center. And specifically, if you go back to the very beginning of the book of John, you look at John chapter 1, you remember there in verse 14, a very famous verse, the Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld held his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, several things worthy of pointing out and looking at in this particular verse, but I want you to settle on the word beheld. The idea of staring upon or gazing upon or fixating your eyesight, your mind upon something. They literally could not take their eyes off of Jesus. They couldn't take their gaze off of Christ and who he was because they had never seen someone like him. They had never heard of anything like the things that he was saying. They knew that a Messiah was coming. It had been prophesied to them, and yet here he was. And they're just simply amazed. They're astonished at who Jesus Christ was. Of course, they hadn't seen anybody else like him. He was deity. He was God himself in the flesh. No one else had power or ability like Jesus Christ had. No one else was so full of grace, so full of mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness, but also no one was ever so full of truth. You continue on in verse 17. Take that thought with you. For the law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Let me take you back to first grade or whatever grade it was that you learned this kind of English. Notice the verb tenses. Think about what he's saying. For the law was what? It was given. Talking past tense. Grace and truth came through. It's giving us this idea of being born, of coming into existence at a later point and at a later time. The truth that sets us free, John chapter 8 and verse 32, came into existence through Jesus Christ and not a moment before. It wasn't in the Old Testament. It wasn't in the Old Law. It wasn't in the Ten Commandments. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how all of that had been abolished. Colossians chapter 2 talks about how it had all been done away with Jesus and the truth that came with him. It did away with the old law and everything about it. In fact, when you read and you study all throughout the Old Testament, what does it point towards? It points towards Jesus Christ and the truth that he was going to bring about. When we talk about truth, we understand that truth didn't come from the mind of man, did it? Truth didn't come from the mind of man. In fact, it is something from Almighty God. It is something from the creator of the universe, and thus it is deserving of the respect, reverence, and awe that we have. I'm taking back in my mind to passages like Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning of verse 23, where the Bible says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. If there is a message that our society and our culture needs to hear, then it's this message right here. It's what Jeremiah is talking about. That the standard for truth, the authority behind truth is something that is God-given. It is something that is God-ordained. It is not something that is backed by the minds and the predetermined decisions of faulty and finite man. Man says, I'll live and I'll do whatever it is that pleases me. But what does the God who is full of truth say? Think about a couple of passages. Psalm chapter 118, beginning in verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Proverbs 28 and verse 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. How about Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse five, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Verse six, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spread out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Brothers and sisters, cursed is the man who trusts in man, but blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. It all goes back to this idea of humanism, doesn't it? This belief, this idea that, that man himself reigns supreme, that there is no room in life for a, for a deity, for a supreme and supernatural being to reign and to have authority over our lives, that man should be his own God that man should be his own authority, that man should have his own version of truth, and that it doesn't matter what anyone or anything else might say. Boy, it sure sounds a whole lot like Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 18, where Paul said, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross. Who are you talking about? Continue reading. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their own shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Also sounds a whole lot like 21st century America, doesn't it? A society who says, live how you please. Do whatever you want. Don't worry about anything but yourself. 
Brothers and sisters, it's vitally crucial to understand that truth exists. And because truth exists, there are very specific requirements that must be met in order to live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to the one who created the standard of truth himself. Here's number two. The truth about the truth is this. It is my standard for Christian living. Truth be told, is, is this not why people don't want to agree that there is a universal truth in our world today? Is this not why people balk at this idea of there being a standard to which every single person must live? Is this not why people wish for truth to be relative or truth to be subject, subjective and not objective? Because if that's the case, then the standard up to which I must live can be as high or it can be as low as I want it to be. And nobody can tell me any different. That my morals can be as dignified or undignified as I want them to be. The Bible, it's just another good book. It's just full of some guidelines that maybe one day, if we consider it to be important enough, we can add into our lives. And I get to my life, I get to live my life however it is I want to live it. And yet when I read throughout the Bible, you and I see painted for us a very different picture from that, don't we? In fact, painted for us is a very specific way of how not to live our lives. When you read throughout the New Testament, the Bible, and even the Old Testament, the Bible teaches us and it shows us principle after principle after principle of how not to live our lives while we are here on this earth. Think about a couple of passages. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 29, being filled, notice this, with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, then those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also those who approve of those who practice them. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. How about 2 Timothy chapter 3? beginning in verse 1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Here's the point. If you and I believe in the objective truth that is contained within the pages of God's word, and you and I recognize that the truth of God's message is one that is personally directed at myself and every single person who is here in this world, then you and I understand that when we come across passages like the ones we just read, we need to do some self-analyzation. We need to do some self-reflection and look within our lives to see if there are things in our lives that we might need to get rid of so that we can be living according to the standard of God's truth. Which you see, if we don't, if we're not willing to make the necessary changes, then you and I are believing in our own standard of truth. 
We are believing that God's truth is not worthy of my time. God's truth is not worthy of my effort, not worthy of my consideration as it pertains to how I'm supposed to live my life. And I'm becoming just like the world around me in that my own truth has become my own standard. But not only that, as you continue reading and studying through the gospel, through, through the truth of God's message, yes, it tells me how not to live my life, but it doesn't just stop there. Because the Bible, in fact, continues on, and it opens up to talk about things that you and I are able to do. It opens the door to a plethora of characteristics that are worthy of being lived out within the lives of Christians. You see, if those characteristics are lived out, then the benefits are also able to be reaped. But here's the problem. Too many people want to live by their own standard of truth and yet reap the benefits of living by God's standard of truth. Ask your boss in your workplace. See if this works with him or with her. Ask and see if you can only work a couple of days. Ask and see if you can, you, you can live and work by your own code of conduct, by doing your own things, and then see at the end of the year if you can still get your bonus. Or see if by the end of the year if you even still have a job to begin with. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work in the secular world, and it most certainly doesn't work in a spiritual realm as it pertains to the lives that you and I are supposed to live and the standard up to which we are supposed to live. God has laid out a standard of living. You and I have completely left behind. We have crucified that old man. We have put it down. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. We are no longer living like we used to. And we're now living a new life. A life that has been dedicated to Jesus Christ. A life that has lived according to the truth. To God's truth. To God's standard. And a life like that looks a whole lot like this. Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such. There is no law. How about Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Finally, brethren, Paul says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things talking about the greed and the love for money, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through verse 7, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. You see, within the truth, within God's truth for us, there's a very specific yet also a very obvious way of first, how not to live our lives, but then second, how we are supposed to live our lives. And if you and I live by those standards, by, by what God has placed within his word, then certainly we'll be faithful and pleasing to him. We're going to see later our eternal destiny depends upon how we respond to that. Here's number three. The truth about the truth is that not only it is the standard for myself, but the truth is also the standard to which I must hold the people around me accountable. When we look at the Apostle Peter, there's a lot of good qualities that come to, that come to mind. And we, when we think about Peter, we think about him being the one to confess Jesus as Christ, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16. When we think about Peter, we remember Peter being the one who on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 stood up on behalf of everybody. 
and began to preach and teach a message of Jesus. We see him healing the lame man one chapter later in Acts chapter 3. We see him being bold, being courageous, going into the council and teaching about Jesus and his resurrection there in Acts chapter 15. We see him being a great author, simply someone who is a great New Testament Christian. But when we think about Peter, we also understand that he wasn't perfect. We understand Peter very, in all, in all honesty, Peter being one of the most relatable people in the New Testament to each of us because we see his mistakes and we see the things that he did that were wrong, but we also see him grow from that. But I think I want to, but I want to highlight one of the things that he did in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is recounting a confrontation. Where, or, or that he had to have with Peter himself. Peter had been eating. He had been socializing uh, with the Gentiles. He had been communing with the Gentile brethren. Not, nothing wrong. In fact, doing something that, that more people in that day and age should have been doing, trying to bridge that gap between Jew and between Gentile. But as Paul says in verse 12, notice what he was doing. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Peter, what are you doing? You're acting in a very hypocritical way. In fact, you're not, it's not only affecting you, but it's also affecting and influencing the people around you. Continue reading in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so what does Paul do? Paul confronts him. Paul withstands him to the face. And as he explaining it, notice verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, notice this, about the truth of the gospel. Paul continues on to talk about and to explain how justification in this particular passage, justification and salvation came through Jesus Christ. It wasn't there in any obedience to the Jewish law. But the point that you and I are pulling from this is this. Paul was able to confront Peter to the face. He withstood him. He rebuked him because of the truth of the gospel. Simply because Paul knew of the gospel, he knew of the truth that was contained therein, he himself was living it out and holding himself to the standard of truth, and thus it emboldened him to be able to go to Peter and to withstand him to the face and to tell him that what he's doing was wrong that what he was doing was sinful. Brothers and sisters, as Christians who adhere to the truth of the gospel, be willing to grow a backbone. Be willing to stand up and to do that which was right, not only in your own life, but also as it pertains to the lives of those with whom we come in contact. Go back to Joey's lesson from last Sunday, and this ties in perfectly, right? If I am going to discipline in love, I have to first start where? with myself. It takes self-discipline. I have to look at my life and make sure that I am living the way that I'm supposed to be living. But when I look out and I see the sin and the wrongdoing in the people around me, I have to be willing to do something about it. I know confrontation is hard. I, I get that. I know that many people don't like to be put into situations where they have to talk to someone and tell them that they are wrong. But when it comes to the truth of the gospel and the standard up to which every single person must live and how someone isn't living up to that standard with an understanding of the consequences that follow, you and I had better be willing to step up and to steer someone in a different direction. Not only with the spiritual well-being of those around us, but also because of our own soul. 
because of our own eternal destiny depending upon that. Several passages come to mind. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A command given to Christians to do whatever it is that they can do to restore someone who has been overtaken by sin. Not to just be acceptant, not to just be tolerant of their sin, but to do so with a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of truth, or a spirit of love. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, but they are still to approach them. They are still to go with the, go to them with the truth of the gospel. What up, first Timothy chapter 5? Beginning of verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. In the context, talking about approaching an elder. Talking about approaching an elder, someone who is a leader in the Lord's church, and how if an elder is in sin, you and I are commanded to go to them and to call them out, to talk to them, to try to understand what is going on in their lives, and to try to get them back to where they need to be going. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Brethren, if, a man, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, this exact verse is why this is so very serious. Sin separates us from God, Isaiah 59 and verse 2. It puts us on a path that is headed for eternal destruction. When you and I call people out, as we say, or when we rebuke people, when we hold them accountable to the standard of truth that God has put in place for every single person. Brothers and sisters, we don't do it because we want to shame. We don't do it because we want to just simply condemn. We don't do it because it makes ourselves feel good. Paul didn't withstand Peter to the face because he wanted to embarrass him in front of everybody. Paul didn't go to Peter and call him out because he wanted to make himself look better on behalf of all the people that were there. It was because of his love for Peter's soul and how because of what he was doing, it was putting him in danger of losing his soul. That's why, brothers and sisters, you and I have to be willing to call out, to rebuke, and to hold others accountable to the standard of God's truth that he has called for every single person to live by, not to our own, our own standard, not to our own authority or our own version of truth, but to the standard of the truth of the gospel. Because, here's number four, the truth about the truth is that one day we are going to be judged by it. One day it is what we will be judged by. And I, I know that we know this, but our world doesn't seem to understand this concept very well. It's interesting, the differences in cultures and in countries, how differently people view their lives, how differently people view the future of their lives. I was sitting down and talking with someone uh, who is getting ready to go back to Australia where he grew up. He's in preaching school right now, and he's getting ready to, to, to go back and to begin preaching uh, to, to, to many of the people there to work with a congregation there. But he talked about how people in, 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 that, in that culture, they don't think ahead in the Australian culture. He said, in fact, he called them very pragmatic-minded. Um, he said that, that when you talk to them and you ask them about, about what's to come, what's going to happen after you die, they just simply say, I don't know. And I guess we're just going to see what happens whenever it happens. That, that's how people in that culture view, view their end times. And at least in America, I think maybe for, for some people, maybe for the majority of people, I think they do look ahead somewhat. 
Uh, they think ahead, right? In our culture, we always try to plan ahead. We always try to figure out what's going to come and to be prepared for that, at least in their minds, but certainly not in their actions. You see, you and I come to an understanding, when we come to an understanding of the truth that is within the pages of the New Testament, we know that it talks about the day of judgment. We know that it talks about the day that, that what Jesus Christ is going to come back. We, we, we understand it's a day that nobody will miss and that every single person will see, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. We understand that it's a day that's going to be like no other, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. We understand that it's a day on which we will all give an account of the things that we've done, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And it's a day where each person's life will be laid parallel with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel, and to see how it is that we've lived our lives, Jesus, John chapter 12 and verse 48. When we talk about truth, it doesn't matter if people accept it or not, does it? When we talk about the, the reality, the truth about the truth, it doesn't matter how people feel about the truth or what their opinion about the truth might be. It doesn't matter if people think that maybe they won't have to stand before the judge and give an answer or an account. Because the only thing that matters is that the Holy Spirit inspired writers and authors to give us superlative terms so that we can have some idea of what is to come, and so that we can be prepared for that great day. No one is going to be able to stand before God and claim ignorance to the truth, because the truth has been in front of them all along. The truth has been there for every single person to sincerely seek out and to understand and to add into their lives. It's right there before them. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, they were just simply too stubborn, too prideful, and, and too unwilling to see the truth. That's the truth about the truth, is that one day we're all going to have to give an answer. One day we're all going to stand before God, and one day we're all going to either hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or we're going to be parted where the sheep are, or excuse me, where the goats are, into a place where none of us ever want to go. The truth about the truth is it is our standard to live our lives. Maybe you are someone who has been studying the truth. Maybe you've come to a realization that you haven't been living up to that standard of truth, and maybe you want to change that the course of your life. Maybe you want to go to heaven, you want heaven to be your home, and you understand that you haven't been obeying the truth of God's message. Maybe you want to change that this morning. If that's the case for you, we'd certainly love to help you. We'd love to assist you. You can come forward, repenting of your sins, confessing Christ's name, being baptized in the water for the remission of your sins. Or maybe you're someone who has obeyed the truth, but maybe you're not living anymore to the standard of that truth. You want to turn your life around, repent of your sins, come back to God, know that we can help you, we can assist you. If you have any this morning, why don't you come? Together we stand and as we sing the invitation song. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.